we live in a broken world. And we see evidence um, of the world's brokenness all around us. Certainly, the events that uh, many of us have read about or seen on TV when it comes to politics over the past uh, months, year or so, is evidence of the world's brokenness. Uh, COVID-19 in and of itself as a disease is evidence of brokenness. Over the past two weeks uh, and longer, there have been things happening within our body. But in particular, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, just out in the foyer, Jeremy uh, Witten and I and a group of others were talking about his father and the, his treatment of COVID, and we were very hopeful that he was going to come out of that, and within 24 hours, he had passed. That next Monday, I uh, got a call from Rick Howard. Uh, Donna had called me and asked me to call Rick, and he sounded great and was able to line up a chest x-ray for him. Uh, he was aspirating and had caught pneumonia. Uh, and then that Friday, uh, Donna found him dead. We live in a broken, disordered world. And as Christians, we know this. And we know that this is a result of sin and that sin has changed everything. And when sin was introduced to the world, everything changed. Everything became disordered. Things are not like they were supposed to to be. But in the midst of this disordered world, we oftentimes, we many times, if we're looking for it, see glimpses and sometimes billboards of of hope. It was interesting as I went down to Alabama and attended Jeremy's father's funeral. uh, One of the things that I learned about him, his name was Jerry, is that Jerry was in 14 foster homes. Statistics say one foster placement uh, does damage to a child. But can you imagine 14 foster homes? The statistics were not in Jerry's favor. His last several foster homes um, were within a church, the same church. Uh, It seemed like over the last maybe couple years of his life, different families in the church kind of took him in and took care of him. When he was 17... In this church, he met his wife, um, married her. And one of the things that was just amazing, when you hear this story, and I'm sitting kind of in the back of the church, and I look at the front row, and you have Jeremy and his sister and his brother and his mother, and they're all dedicated believers, an intact family of dedicated believers. And then there's like nine or ten grandchildren that each gave testimony to their grandfather and his faithfulness and his love of the Lord. And I think back to this summer when Jeremy was telling me that they, the family, they were all meeting on Zoom together, having a Bible study through the book of Ephesians. And you look at that and you see in the midst of a disordered world what Christ can do. The redemption that took place in that family. As Donna Looney has gone through some difficult times and some very uncertain times um, of where is she going to live, how is she going to support herself. It's just been amazing to sit back and see how this church has kind of responded and stepped up. And some of you have even um, offered for her to come and to to live with 
with you. And um, Friday, uh, a couple of guys uh, who didn't really even know Donna uh, went down and helped her move some furniture into another place. And she just has over and over again just been touched by the love of Christ that she has seen in a crazy time in her life that she's been able to see Christ in the midst of you. And I think about what Anna was talking about this morning. I can't think of anything kind of more disordered than somebody being in such a situation and feeling so down and feeling so hopeless hopeless that they're making decisions about the birth of a child. Or something kind of so disordered that we live in a society where it's so easy just to discard a child. And in the midst of this dark, chaotic, disordered world, we see organizations like Choices who are standing on the gospel to bring hope into the situation where oftentimes no hope is seen. They're standing in the gap. In the middle of the chaos, we see hope. As we look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark wants us to see and to know who this Christ is. And in fact, and you'll hear me say this a lot as we're looking through this Gospel, the way that Mark structures this Gospel is that he, Jesus is put on display. Whether it's in His teaching, His casting out of demons, healing the situations we're going to talk about this morning, that Jesus is put on display, and there's a proclamation that is made, either by word or deed, of who Christ is, and then Mark calls us, Jesus, through the words of Jesus, calls us to a response. Here's who Christ is. How are you going to respond? Jesus is calling His hearers out. Jesus is telling us, here's who I am. Come out from the disorder and follow me. The original audience to whom Mark was writing was going through some very difficult times, persecution. And as they were receiving this gospel from Mark, the call that they heard in the middle of persecution was Come out and follow me. In the middle of chaos, in the middle of this disordered world, they were being called out. And what's very interesting is that the the Greek word for church, do you know what it means? It means the called out ones. That's who we are as the church of Christ. That we are ones that have been called out by Christ into something glorious. They, we, need to see as we read this gospel that there is another reality in this broken world. As we look at the passages of scriptures that were read this morning, um, I, I think a lot of questions come to mind if you really think about it and if you study these passages. And questions like this come to mind Why was Jesus baptized? You ever thought about that question? Why did Jesus have to go out into the desert? What about, then? we won't get all the way into this one this morning, but 
What about the Holy Spirit? Did Jesus have the Holy Spirit before the Holy Spirit descended like a dove? A lot of questions here. Another question we have is, you know, the other Gospels have a lot more narrative around the things like the baptism of Jesus or Jesus in the wilderness. Mark doesn't even tell us what the devil is tempting Jesus with. We don't even in Mark get the uh, declaration of Jesus where he is quoting Scripture back to the devil so that, you know, the, for us, so that we know how to mirror spiritual warfare. We don't even get that in this text. So why in the world is Mark so brief as he is writing this? And I think that Mark has a point that he is driving home that he wants us to hear, and he doesn't hide it from us. He doesn't hide it from us. In fact, I think when you read this Gospel, what you see from the very beginning is that Mark structures this in such a way that it kind of crescendos here in the middle of this chapter, and then from that crescendo, the rest of the Gospel, that we're supposed to read the rest of the Gospel through this lens, through this crescendo. And I want you to see it. It's in verses 14 and 15. Look at the declaration that Jesus gives us. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, this is the declaration, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That this summarizes what we have seen before, and it sets the agenda for how we are to read the Gospel of Mark from here on out. And notice first, again, this is the pattern of Mark, notice first that there's a proclamation. Behold, the Kingdom of God is here. That Christ makes this declaration. Christ makes this proclamation. The Kingdom of God is here. The reign of God is here. Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. That God has made a way. And this Jesus, He is the one who has been prophesied about and who has been sent to make all things right. He is the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. He is going to conquer sin and all the effects that sin has unleashed on the world. Again, there's a proclamation and then there's a call. Notice the call. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel that if you want to be part of the kingdom that has come, all you have to do is repent and believe that this Jesus is the one whom God has sent. Now, to read this Gospel correctly, and to I think to see correctly the verses that go beforehand, we've got to have this in mind. And I think this is what Mark is driving home. And so I want to back up, and I want to look at Jesus' baptism. I want to look at Jesus' baptism. And, and there is a lot of debate of, why did Jesus get baptized? And the, and the debate surrounding that is pretty clear, right? Why was, why was John baptizing people? Look at verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. So, kids, did Jesus ever sin? 
Good. I like that good hearty no. So Jesus never sinned. And so why did Jesus have to be baptized? Was He being baptized for repentance and the forgiveness of sins? This is the same question that John asked in, in another account of this, of, of this baptism. In Matthew 3, uh, Jesus is coming to be baptized. And do you remember what John says? John says, no, 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 no. I'm not baptizing. You don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. That John uh, says the same thing. John got it as well. And so, as I was reading and studying this week, I went to several friends and said, hey, and, and there's, you, can, you can chase a rabbit with this question pretty far. And so I asked the question to some of our friends, hey, why do you think Jesus needed to be baptized? And one, I got some great answers, but one, one very wise, good friend, um, he immediately, didn't know what I was going to ask him, and he immediately came out with this. He said, why did the stone have to be rolled away at Jesus' tomb? Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away to raise from the dead. Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away to walk out of the tomb. In fact, we see Jesus in His resurrected body just like appearing and disappearing. The reason the stone was rolled away was so that the, the women and the disciples could come and they could see that Jesus was no longer there. And my friend was driving home this point when I asked him, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Why do you think? He was like, he had to be baptized so that we could see something about who he was. And, and there are several things that we should see from this baptism about who Jesus is is and it communicates several truths to us one and this is really important is that when jesus was baptized one of the things that the original people there and the original readers and that we should know is that we are seeing the unfolding plan of god we're seeing the unfolding plan of god that john the baptist was who he said he was it was he was the messenger. He was the one that came before. And so that we have the prophecy of the coming. We have the forerunner. And then we have Jesus who came. Notice. Notice verse 15. Jesus in His preaching is saying this, And the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. This was the same message that John gave. This is not two different Gospels. And so one of the things that we see is that Jesus is the prophesied one. Another thing that we see, another thing that we see is we see the obedience of Jesus. We see the obedience of Jesus. And we know, we know the story that not only was Jesus obedient here at the baptism, but that He was obedient even to the point of death, even to the point of death on the cross and that Jesus constantly humbled himself and was obedient and was perfectly righteous. And in Matthew chapter three, again, when John was questioning uh, why Jesus was coming to be baptized. Sorry, I got went the wrong way here in Matthew chapter three. 
Verse 14, it says, But John tried to prevent him from being baptized, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus answers this question of why he was going to be baptized. He said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted it. So that Jesus is being obedient. Jesus was perfectly obedient. So Jesus was 100% man and he never sinned. He was always obedient. And so when Jesus came and when he was baptized, we see this obedience and we see that because of his obedience, he was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly right with God. Now. He was perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient, even before the baptism. And I said this in the first service and maybe took it a step too far. And that was, you know, for some of you moms, you know, some of you have been around other moms who kind of mom brag, you know, that my kid's reading at two years old, is reading encyclopedias or books or whatever. But what about if you were having a conversation with Mary and maybe you were complaining that, you know, little Susie keeps eating her boogers or hitting her brother or whatever. And you say, hey, what about Jesus? And Mary's like, he's perfect. Never sinned. Perfect obedience. What we need to see is that this isn't just a cute thing or a badge of honor But there's something deeper here. There's this deep thing that we need to see. And that is, is that when we fast forward to the cross, and when we see Jesus in His obedience going to the cross, we see another time where we ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? He was sinless. He was obedient. He did no wrong. And yet, He was put on the cross for sin, for punishment. And we know He was put on the cross to take on our sin, our punishment. So on the cross, He takes on our sin, our punishment, and realize this, what is it that we get? We get the results of His obedience and His righteousness. So when we look at this picture of this baptism, we see a picture of Christ's obedience. And the other imagery I think that is here that is vitally important, that I think is obvious that Mark is pointing us to, is we see the coronation of a king. We see the coronation of a king. Notice that in verse 10, it says, immediately as he's coming out of the water, look at what happens. This is like a uh, celestial inauguration. Immediately as he's coming up out of the water, the heavens opened, the Spirit descends, and a voice comes from the heaven saying, you are my son. This is God declaring that this is the King. This is the Messiah. He has come. It's a proclamation. And it wasn't like He wasn't that before, but this is the proclamation as He is to begin His earthly ministry, as He is is beginning ushering the kingdom through His preaching, His teaching, and His healing, that this is the beginning of that. And so as we see at the baptism, what we're seeing is the coronation of a king. And so what is very interesting is what would you expect the king to go and do next? To charge right into wherever he was going and begin to do things like cast out demons, heal people, and preach. And he does do that. 
But do you find it interesting what happens next? Look at verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. So you have the proclamation of the king and the Spirit immediately propels him to go out to the wilderness. Now it's fascinating here, again, we don't get all the details that we do in the other gospel accounts. And so the details that Mark gives us are vitally important. And let's look at some of those details. The first thing that I want you to see is that he is alone in the wilderness for 40 days. And this is not an easy task. Do you all remember the shows that were really popular, you know, four or five years ago? Bear Grylls and all those other guys that were dropped in a helicopter into, these, into the wilderness with just like a pocket knife and they supposedly were surviving and making it, you know, and I think they were just staying out there a couple of days and how rough and tough it was. But then we learned, do you remember what we learned? That when the camera was off, the helicopters were picking them back up and they were like going to Holiday Inn. Why? Because it's tough. The wilderness is not a great place to be. It is wild. And Mark is telling us that Jesus, the King of the world, was here in the wild. And not only that, but He is being tempted by Satan. So that the King immediately goes out into the wilderness, out into the wild, and is attacked, is tempted by Satan. One of the other things that's fascinating to me, and I don't know if you've if you caught this. Uh, and interestingly, when I was reading and studying, it was the first time that I really saw this and thought about it. But notice that it says. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts. Why in the world does Mark tell us that he was with the wild beasts? We already know that. Mark is not about uh, wordiness and expanding things. And so, why does Mark tell us that there were wild animals? And in some sense, he could be telling us, making sure that we know this is not like he was at the Ritz-Carlton. That he really was out and he was in it and he was amongst the wild animals. But the other thing that I, that, that I wonder, if, if the picture that Mark... I wonder if Mark is trying to create this picture... That here we have the king of the universe, the co-creator in a disordered world. That the world that was created to sustain life and to bring glory and honor to God has turned. And we see Jesus in the wilderness, the king, and the beasts around him are wild. They are no longer tame. And that Satan is roaming as he will, as if he runs the place. Can you see the picture that I think that Mark is trying to paint for us of this man, this king, who comes to this world where Satan and creation itself is trying to work against him. And get this. As Jesus starts his public ministry, what we're going to see 
is that Jesus comes into another wilderness. Jesus comes into another wilderness where there are people who are demon-possessed. There are people that from birth have been lame, who, who are blind, who have sickness. There are people that are, have hard, hard hearts and that they manipulate and they um, sin against others. And they take advantage of people. In, in, in some ways, Jesus is trading one wilderness for the other as He comes into civilized society. And I think Mark is pointing this to us because look again at verse 14. Now, after John had been arrested, God's man, this prophet who came to proclaim that the king of the universe had come, Jesus said about John, there is no man that, that is, it ever walked the face of the earth that's greater than John. And in this disordered world, this prophet, after he proclaimed and announced the coming of the king, is arrested and eventually beheaded. This is the world to which Christ has come. And I think one of the things that we see in this text, as Christ is coming out of the literal wilderness in this text, is a foreshadowing of things to come. That Satan comes, that Christ comes out of the wilderness, not defeated by Satan, and is a foreshadowing that when he goes to the cross, that he will deliver the final blow against Satan and his demons. That as He overcomes the, 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 the creation and the dysfunction of the world, that one day this King will return again and make all things right. But until then, until then, Jesus, in this book, calls His disciples and calls us to follow Him in a disordered world. As Jesus starts His ministry, Mark is making clear that the Prince, the King of the universe, is walking in a disordered world and calling us to follow Him in that. We know the turning point of this Gospel. I've told you, you're going to get to chapter 9, in chapter 8, you're going to see the crowds are there. Everybody's celebrating. Everybody's around Jesus. And then Jesus starts talking about suffering and death. And people disappear. But the proclamation is still, I am the king of the universe. Will you follow me? Now, did you notice that when talking about Jesus in the wilderness, that I left out something. That Jesus, when He was in the wilderness, He wasn't alone. That the angels were there. Now, I am not going to... This is not going to turn into a sermon about personal angels and that sort of thing. I think the point that Mark is saying is that even though He was alone in the wilderness, He was not alone. That God sent angels to minister to Him. And what we know about Jesus and what we know about the Trinity is that the the Trinity is all wrapped up in this complicated, all-in-one, sufficient 
thing. And that Christ is not alone in the wilderness. Even if the angels had not been there, Christ is in communion with the Father and the Spirit. And they're together and they're one in the wilderness. So that even in the dark, disordered world, in the wilderness, that Christ was not alone. And Jesus wants us to know that we are not alone either. Last week we touched on this verse in verse 8 where it says, John is saying, I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what's fascinating here is that Jesus never physically baptizes anybody. Or at least we don't have any account of Jesus physically baptizing anyone. Mark doesn't mention the Holy Spirit any other time in his letter except for one other place. And I want you to turn there with me real quick. Mark chapter 13. Mark here is talking about the things to come. And I'm going to start in verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. And things, these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts. And you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Notice, but say whatever is given in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the what? Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and the children will rise up against parents to have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That in these dark, difficult times in which Jesus is prophesying about and speaking about, again, Mark, Jesus brings up and Mark communicates again, you will not be alone. You will have the Spirit to help you. And what I think that we see and what is crystal clear is that at Pentecost, at the beginning of the church, Jesus baptizes the church with the Holy Spirit. And from that point forward, all who come to Him are given the Holy Spirit. That this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that we are not left alone. And so we who are living in this age where Jesus the King has come, He has gone and He will come back, that we are not left alone in this disordered world, but that we have the Holy Spirit to help us and to guide us in this world. And so when I'm at the funeral of Jerry Witten, and I'm sitting there in the back row, and I'm thinking about what his childhood must have been like, and I'm thinking about what maybe some of the thoughts or some of the things that must plague him must be like, and then I look at that front row, I look, the only, the only thing that you can say is praise God. That the Holy Spirit in the life of this man has done great things. 
when I see the work of groups like Choices, where at a time when the culture is not celebrating what Choices does, the difficulties that they go through, the courage to stand in the gap and to proclaim truth and to love women in difficult situations and to offer forgiveness for women who have made bad choices and that there's healing and there's reconciliation. I view that as the work of the Holy Spirit. So what about you? What about us? The proclamation has been made. The King has come. And the King is bidding you, church, called out one, to follow me. Will you stand in the midst of this disordered world, empowered by the Spirit, to do the work that God has called you to do? Mark is begging this question of us. And we know that the readers, the, the first century readers that got this letter, uh, they were in a time of great persecution. And so Mark is calling them out and saying, stand firm in the gospel. Your king has come. He is returning. He hasn't left you alone. And he leaves them with the question. What will you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray this morning that as we read this gospel, that we will look and that we will see your son, the king of the universe. And that as we live in this disordered world of sickness and death and pain, God, we will be a people who look to your Son and are empowered by the Spirit and take a stand on the side of hope and reconciliation. That we will relish in the power of the Gospel and we'll proclaim it no matter what it costs. God, if there's any within the sound of my voice, whether in this room or that are watching live stream, who have never placed their hope and trust in You, who have never repented and believed, God, I pray that the eyes of their hearts would be open this morning, they would see You for who You are, and that they this morning would repent and believe. God, we love You. We thank You for all You've done. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me.